The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist Marketeers 4DC. Hello, welcome to The Echo Chamber PR podcast. This is Arun Sudharman, editor of The Homes Report. Thank you for joining us and thanks as always to Marketeers 4DC for helping us deliver today's show. Welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report. As always, the show is being produced by Marketeers 4DC and we're going to go through our annual crisis review today where we break down the top 10 crises of 2014 and look at what they got wrong and what the PR lessons are. We're joined on today's show by Homes Report founder, CEO, Supremo, Paul Holmes. Welcome. Hi. So before you jet off to New York for, uh, I think it's Sabre Judging. It is. Let's talk about some of these crises. Uh, First of all, I mean, before we get into the nitty gritty of each one, would you say 2014 was a vintage year for the PR crisis? Well, I think one of the things that is sort of either incredibly encouraging or incredibly discouraging, depending on what side of the table you're sitting, is that even though my experience suggests to me that 90% of crises could be avoided by the exercise of even a modicum of common sense, we continue to pour through 40 or 50 candidates every year in order to find the top 10. There is certainly no indication that the corporate world is learning from its past mistakes or that crisis aversion has replaced crisis management as the focus of a great deal of activity. And one of the things that that is interesting about this year's list is that it seems to me that the majority of crises on there could have been averted or at least minimized by being addressed much earlier than they were. But do you think part of that is just down to the fact that we live in an age now where molehills become mountains much more easily. As far as the crises on our list are concerned, I mean, I don't think any of them were molehills. You know, I I certainly don't think the Bill Cosby crisis that you wrote about was a molehill. I certainly don't think that the NFL's crisis with the whole sort of domestic abuse issue was a molehill. You know, Air Malaysia is certainly not a molehill. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, let's not ignore the fact that in some of these crises, people were killed. In mm-hmm. others of these crises, people were fairly seriously injured one way or another. Yeah, I don't think that's the case. But what I think is that the ability, this is not a mountain molehill issue necessarily, but, but I think that the ability to sweep crises under the rug Mm-hmm. which was certainly there when some of these crises had their origins. Because, let's face it, the Bill Cosby crisis goes back 25 years right. to you know the earlier cases, and the, the GM crisis goes back more than a decade. I think when these crises started, companies and individuals could still operate under the, the assumption that their problems could be swept under the rug. And I think what has changed is that that kind of sweeping is no longer possible, that the age of transparency makes it almost inevitable that these events are going to come to light one way or another. Yeah, it's interesting because we talk about Bill Cosby quickly. I mean, um, I don't want to spend too much time on that one, but that really came out because of social media. 
you know, an internet meme went wrong, a show by a stand-up comic went viral, and all of a sudden you had these stories which, as you mentioned, had been around for a long time, but had not been reported by the traditional media, which is kind of astounding when you think about it. But then under this kind of groundswell of social media interest, suddenly people realize it couldn't be ignored any longer. I think that's very true. I mean, I think you could even make the case that the Sony hack would not have been as big a crisis as it was if it wasn't for social media. I mean, I think it is possible to envisage an age when the leaking of all of those confidential emails, for example, was dealt with fairly quietly, where mainstream media decided that it would have been inappropriate to further the goals of the hackers by writing those stories. But I think in the social media age, that that became an impossibility. Managing that news flow uh, was mm-hmm. never going to be possible in, in the social media age. That, that much is certainly true. Well, let's start with Sony, because that was an interesting one. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that I think we're going to see more and more, right? This kind of, these data hacks and revelations about a company. I mean, surely the lesson here is don't behave badly in the first place. I mean, well, maybe not with Sony because, you know, you can't really legislate for a cyber attack linked to the government of North Korea. But certainly in the case of some of the emails that came out where, you know, they were not particularly um, good in terms of some of the things Sony people were saying about film stars and all the rest of it. Surely that's just an issue there in terms of their own behavior. Yeah, I don't think you can say that the crisis was triggered by bad behavior. I mean, I think uh, producing a movie like The Interview is a perfectly legitimate creative choice. I don't categorize that as bad behavior. But I do think that anybody who writes an email like that today on the assumption that it will reach its intended audience and then go no further is being incredibly naive. I mean, the Almost anything that you write or commit to to any kind of electronic communication has the potential to find its way into the public domain today. Mm. And I would say, you know, not only the potential, but but the extreme likelihood. Mm. Um, you know, anybody who isn't conducting their personal business as if it will one day become public is making a huge mistake. And, and Sony is not the first company to run into that. Again, looking for sort of common threads between some of the crises that we're writing about. I mean, there were a lot, you know, a lot of emails at the heart of the General Motors crisis that demonstrated that 10 or 12 years ago, the company was working very hard to, we've used this phrase a number of times, sweep things under the carpet. And again, you know, those emails eventually became public as, as they inevitably will in that kind of situation. And it just speaks to the need to be very, very circumspect. Going back to Sony, I think what's interesting here as well is the idea of data privacy being a source of a corporate crisis now is something clearly that companies have to get used to. Um, How ready do you think their communications departments are for this um, as a potential public relations crisis and how prepared are PR agencies to help them? So my guess is that In a couple of very specific industries, data security is being, has been taken more seriously over the last two or three years, thinking particularly of technology and financial services. Mm -hmm. Um, Technology, because this is at its heart a technology issue, 
Um, and so companies in that sector are fairly well equipped to prepare themselves. Financial services, because frankly, if you haven't at this point taken extreme measures to protect your data, then you're going to be liable for all kinds of legal problems because there have been enough incidents in the financial services sector that there's really no excuse at this point. But I think a lot of other companies are still in the very early stages of figuring this out. Um, I think we've seen the launch of a number of data protection PR specialties in the last few years, both by the sort of big corporate and financial sort of big boutiques, if that makes sense, the specialist firms like Brunswick. Um, kind of reminds me of the clean tech bandwagon. Yes, there is a, an element of sort of setting up a practice and then hoping that you get some business rather than doing a lot of work and then turning it into a practice. Some of these groups, uh, at least when they started, were clearly aspirational. Mm. Um, but I do think that it's something that PR agencies, the best PR agencies are thinking fairly seriously about and have moved to address and can help companies with. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've talked about Sony. Let's move on to everyone's favorite, I think, Uber, which, despite hiring you know, someone who's considered one of the best communicators in the U.S., David Plouffe, Obama's you know, message specialist, uh, con- has continued to find itself at the wrong end of, uh, of bad publicity and, and, most worryingly, seems to kind of actively go out of its way to make things worse. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I've made this point in a couple of places previously, but, you know, my, my feeling is the, the culture of an organization is what drives a lot of this. And it seems to me that, you know, what Uber is faced with, if it wants to avoid crises, is not changing the way it communicates, it's changing the DNA of the organization. Mm. A lot of tech companies grow up like this. They grow up in an environment where being the bad boy, being the challenger, being aggressive in the marketplace is seen as an unalloyed good. Hmm. And so that's the kind of culture that they develop. And the problem is that as you sort of make that transition from being a challenger and being judged as a sort of new disruptive force, to being, you know, a major player, a real corporation, you have to find a way of adjusting your culture and adapting your culture to new circumstances. And if you don't, you become a company that is so used to playing by its own rules and develop such an us against the rest of the world mentality and, a, you know, nobody understands us and our mindset that you feel like you can get away with anything. And I think the challenge for Uber is to adjust that. And I don't think it's as simple as hiring a great PR person. Um, I think it requires a commitment to change the very top of the organization. Mm. It's interesting to contrast Uber to General Motors, for example. I mean, the thing that they have in common is that they both made, and Sony, by the way, is, is another example. I mean, all three companies brought in new CCOs, at least partly in response to the fact that they were going through this kind of crisis. GM, it seems to me, is the one example out of those three that didn't just change its PR person, they changed the culture. Mm. Um, I think that's a CEO as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a process that had started 
before Mary Barrett came in. Uh-huh. But I think the fact that she was relatively new to the job sort of gave her permission and gave her the right to talk about a new GM and new ways of doing things and to really contrast that with what had gone before. I don't see any evidence that that kind of change is taking place at Uber. What you're really saying is the very culture that made them successful in the first place ends up hurting them as they get bigger and more established. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I think we've seen this with, you know, almost every tech company since Microsoft, right up until the antitrust stuff hit them in Washington, was able to sort of play by this. We're part of the new economy. Nobody outside of Silicon Valley or or Redmond really understands what it is we're doing. You know, we don't really need to pay attention to the rest of the world as long as we have a good product and we bring it to market. That's the only thing that matters. And then the outside world intrudes. The time you get before the outside world intrudes is getting shorter and shorter. You know, Microsoft had 25 years before the outside world started sort of pushing back. Uber, you know, hasn't even been around for five. Yeah. Are they too testosterone driven? (laughs) Not Uber, but not Uber specifically, but, you know, these new tech companies in general. I certainly think that there is a, a question about the culture in Silicon Valley in general that's been raised, you know, many, many times, whether it's, you know, in the, the online gaming community, whether it's women at conferences tweeting about acts of harassment, mm-hmm. um, whether it's Uber threatening to go after a female reporter who... Mm-hmm you know, doesn't sort of entirely buy into the party line. There's an element of the culture that's a little troubling. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on then. How about the NFL? Should we talk about them? I mean, all of these were were kind of badly handled in in various ways, but this was really remarkable to watch unfold. Just the apparent disinterest they had in actually pursuing this or investigating it uh, or, or actually address what happened, despite apparently knowing well in advance, I think, of some of the pretty worrying events that took place. Yeah, if, I mean, if, if the NFL hadn't seen the video, it had actively gone out of its way to avoid seeing the video oh. um, before the rest of us did. It just seemed to me that the organization was lurching from one position to another as it was forced to without ever really having a a coherent strategy. So it always seemed to be reacting Mm -hmm. to what was happening in the media rather than getting ahead of the story. And the way a lot of crises work is that, you know, there's the initial story and then there's a drip of, a sort of steady drip of new information. And if you're Mm -hmm. always responding to the new information that appears, you always look awkward at, at best and guilty at worst. And um, the NFL miscalculated all along the way uh, with do, that crisis. Does that, I mean, given the NFL's history of miscalculating things, does that surprise us that they haven't learned by now? Or do we just think, you know, after all of the things with concussions, with referees and so on, um, this, this is the kind of response we should expect from the NFL? So I I think there are a couple of things. I mean, I think, first of all, the NFL exists in and is part of the culture 
that says that athletes, and this is a very American thing, though I'm not saying it doesn't happen in the UK and elsewhere, that athletes can get away with behavior that other people can't. It also exists in a world of extreme fandom where it knows that it will be forgiven by a large percentage of its most loyal customers simply because the product it's delivering connects with them in a very emotional, fanatical way, right? I, I, yeah. And again, you know, trying to find, trying to find some common threads between these behaviors. So, yeah. you know, I think, you know, Bill Cosby behaved on the same assumption that, yeah. you know, there are a bunch of people out there who have bought into his image to such an extent that they will continue to make excuses for him no matter what happens. Mm. Um, I think Uber, to a certain extent, has the same mindset that, you know, it it has so many really devoted customers. I mean, customers who are prepared to go on social media and defend it. It feels slightly insulated from legitimate criticism. Right. And I think, you know, I think the NFL suffered from that. You know, the perception certainly is that the U.S. sports organizations are better governed. Uh, another um, organization that made it onto our list was FIFA. And I don't think anyone would ever accuse FIFA of being well governed. No, no. At least, <laughs> I mean, at, at least the American sporting organizations seem to be answerable to somebody. I mean, certainly, certainly, you know, leaving the NFL for a sec and then looking at an organization that, that could easily have made our list but didn't. Um, the NBA, when it was faced with the whole Donald Sterling race remarks crisis um, earlier in the year, acted like an organization that was responsible and accountable and had to um, had to actually care what its fans thought about it. Yeah, the NBA is, I think, probably the best managed sport in the world. It certainly, certainly in this in this incident. I mean, there you know, there there are probably sports that neither you or I know have any awareness of. Yeah, but, but I mean, come, I mean, know, but, but yes, a, of the big sports, the right. NBA is pretty as big. a major global sport. Let's move on to FIFA and football. Um, I think one of our commentators described FIFA's crises in 2014 as a box set where the Godfather meets Shaun of the Dead, which is one way of putting it. Yeah, I'm, but, a, I'm, a, I, I'm a football or, or, for our American audience, soccer fan. And yes. so I don't, I don't find anything about the FIFA nearly as amusing as I found Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> um, I mean, it is, it is somewhat worrying, some of the things that are being said. But the, the, the way that they handled their investigation... I mean, what what are the lessons from that? They refuse to make the summary public. Again, I think for a whole slew of reasons that we probably don't have time to go into here, FIFA is ultimately completely unaccountable. Mm. It's a multinational organization. It's not under any one jurisdiction. You know, unless the FBI starts investigating, you know, some sort of massive fraud, um, FIFA can set its own rules and, basically run itself any way it wants to. Does that work, though, now? I mean, when these sports are multi-billion dollar properties? Well, apparently it does. I mean, you know, FIFA is still out there, and there's really no reason to believe that any of the problems it's gone through, 
you know, over the last 12 months or the last 12 years has made a dent in its ability to make profits or, you know, run the largest global sporting event outside of the Olympics. So, Which suggests but, the only thing that will affect real change is pressure from sponsors. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I do think that there is a time coming when being associated with FIFA is going to be something that companies are asked to explain. If they are seen not as supporting the game, but as supporting the organization, then I think it will start to become a public relations issue for them. And, and this is not something that we'd necessarily talk about in the context of the 10 crises we have online. But certainly, you know, there are now crises that come about not because a company is doing something terrible itself, but because it's partnering with somebody doing something terrible. You know, there's that wonderful Greenpeace video that showed Lego being yeah. submerged in oil, mm -hmm. um, not because Lego is doing anything to damage the environment, but because Lego had a partnership with, was it Shell or BP? I'm sorry. Shell. Shell. Shell, thank you. And Lego's partnership with Shell came to an end because it was an embarrassment to Lego. You can easily see a company's partnership with FIFA coming to an end if it becomes an embarrassment to that company. So, you know, that, that kind of thing is certainly now within the realm of possibility. Um, and then before we finish, would you like to talk a little bit... Well, let, let, let's choose. We can either go at, go at Malaysia Airlines... Or Tesco. I guess the airlines are more, more interesting. I mean, of the crises on our list, it seems to me that Malaysia Airlines is the one where the organization appears to be the least to blame. I don't think anybody has made any allegations that, you know, Malaysia Airlines had lax maintenance or was, you know, somehow systemically at fault for the two incidents that we're looking at here. Yeah. In those situations, the challenge is very different because the company at the heart of the crisis is not a villain. It's a victim almost as much as mm. the people who died. It's a victim. Um, but as we pointed out in the review, if you compare its response to AirAsia, for example, which was also a victim, it was, it was very different. Yes. So in those circumstances, in nearly every other crisis that we're looking at, the organization is being examined for the operational, systemic or cultural factors that created the crisis. Mm -hmm. In the Air Malaysia case, you are really just looking at the way in which it responded to the crisis. Mm. We're in an industry here where crises like this should not be unanticipated events, where there should be a clear plan for response. And so being judged to fairly high standards for the quality of your response is not unexpected or unreasonable. Right. And yes, with the disappearance of the plane in the first incident, there's the added difficulty of simply not knowing the answer to a lot of questions. But at the same time, I think it's entirely appropriate for the organization to be questioned and criticized for the quality of its response. Mm, yeah, and I think your dog agrees. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then finally, before you go, what are your, say, one, two or three big lessons from 2014's year in crisis? 
I think the first one is something that, you know, we've as an organization harped on several times in the past, which is, you know, conduct business as if everything you say and everything you do will one day find its way onto the front page of the New York Times or, you know, CNN headline news or whatever. Assume that we're living in an age of transparency and conduct yourself accordingly. The second, this is a point that I probably made ad nauseum through this podcast, a lot of crises are, in fact, perfectly accurate reflections of the culture and character of the organization. Just as it can be said that people are who they really are in times of crises, companies are who they really are in times of crises. You should try and build the kind of culture of respect and empathy and honesty and integrity that will serve you well when a crisis occurs. And then the final thing I think that I'd say is a few years ago, I produced a list of sort of the top 10 crises and then looked down them. And I think five or six of the CEOs involved had lost their jobs. And I said, you know, one of the lessons here is that this is something that the C-suite should care about because, okay, whether your share price crashes or whether the company goes out of business, the guy who's running things is getting held accountable for this. We saw that in a couple of incidents this year. We're also seeing some people clinging to their leadership role, but we're also seeing CCOs losing their jobs because of crises. And, you know, this is, in that context, life or deathy kind of thing for the CEO and the CCO, and it should be treated as such on an ongoing basis. Well, thank you very much, as always. Have fun in the U.S. with the Sabre judging, and we will hopefully have you back on the Echo Chamber soon. Thank you. Thank you. And you can find all of the details of our crisis review on our website, www.homesreport.com, and your feedback is always welcome, whether via email, social media, or indeed the telephone. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers for DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 